the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. How about leaving the kids alone? It's all over the media today. The American Academy Academy of Pediatrics has a report out on youth sports. Maybe you've seen it. The headline is that uh, 70% of kids burn out by 13, and there are all kinds of reasons given for the burnout. Lots of pointers on how to avoid it. Kids should get at least two days a week away from organized sports. There's overuse, overtraining. <clears throat> I didn't see any breakdown of boys and girls, and you would think that there would be a difference. And if girls are quitting sports at a higher rate than boys, maybe that 70% is misleading. I'd like to see the numbers on that. One of the stories had a picture of a doctor looking at a girl's foot, little girl. She looks like she's about six. And one story quoted a doctor who said kids shouldn't play organized sports until they're six. Six. Now, I don't know what six-year-old girls should be doing, but six-year-old boys should be out playing in the dirt with their toy trucks or just rolling in the dirt. I don't know, throwing rocks at birds. They shouldn't be playing organized anything. And that's what's left out of the study, questioning whether kids should even be playing organized sports until they're 11 or 12, and then maybe they wouldn't be burned out by the time they're 13. Hey, maybe they quit because they're bored or because of their age. You know, they stink. And when you stink at something, you're not interested in anybody organizing you to play it. Kids are too organized now. Parents are too involved. For too many parents, their social life is too dependent on showing up to watch their five-year-olds run around on a soccer field. So how about this? Stop trying to organize them. Let them go outside and decide what they're going to play on their own and what the rules are. And one other pointer that was in the study, it said, don't emphasize winning, just have fun. That sounds like something one of our mothers would tell us when we were arguing during a backyard pickup game. That was a million years ago, of course. If you're keeping score, it's about winning. If you're not keeping score, it's a practice. Boys like to compete. They like winners. They like losers. Let boys be boys and try leaving all the kids alone once in a while. When we come back, Donald Trump is in. Nikki Haley is the only person who doesn't think so, think so. And guess whose name keeps coming up? Michelle Obama. And a guy who predicted in his book that she'd run in 2024 hasn't changed his mind. In our second half hour, crime is going to be a big issue in this election. We'll have an expert here with a simple plan for reducing it. Stick around. So Donald Trump is in, uh, not that there was ever much doubt. Of course, he could be in jail uh, during or after the campaign here, but he is going to be the nominee. And you know whose name has been popping up lately? Michelle Obama's. She, she uh, could come to the Democrats' rescue when they finally decide it can't be the big guy. Joel Gilbert has been talking about this for a long time. He produced a documentary and wrote a book called Michelle Obama, Her Real-Life Story and Her Plan for Power, and he joins us now. Joel, thanks for coming back on the show. Appreciate it. Thanks. Great to be back. So uh, based on the conversation we had uh, when your book came out, 
I get the feeling that nothing that has happened in the last uh, year or so has uh, changed your mind. No, I'm uh, firmly believing uh, Michelle has been preparing to be the nominee and that the Democrat Party is kind of setting it up for her. They put the Democrat National Convention in Chicago, of all places, Michelle's hometown. I think it'll be a hometown coronation. And it's clear that nobody wants Joe Biden. The record is getting worse and worse, the, the economy internationally, uh, young voters, suburban voters, you name it, nobody wants him. The down-ballot Democrats are terrified he'll drag down the ticket. So I think it's in the works. Uh, Michelle is clearly the most popular Democrat. She's the best-loved Democrat. She has a huge national following. And she can fill up stadiums and, and read a speech. So uh, we saw last week Michelle gave a, a podcast interview and talked about how she's terrified of Donald Trump winning, how uh, trickle-down doesn't work, which is a euphemism for saying that free market system doesn't work. And also she said that, um, uh, you know, she's uh, someone that, thinks we, we need, uh, you know, Democrat control. So uh, she's clearly the front runner as soon as she announces, and I think they'll, they'll engineer it sometime in the spring or early summer. Um, and you point out, you, you really, I, I think what you're saying is that you, you have to actually know her real life story, her real life story, in order to see why this could happen. Well, her real life story is that she is very political. She uh, was the child of a precinct captain. Her father was a politician. She grew up in Jesse Jackson's house. She was best friends with his daughter, Santita, when Jackson was running for president in the early 80s. Uh, she's always been super political. She married a politician. You know, she married her father. Uh, there was a professor at Harvard named Charles Ogletree, who was a Harvard law professor for both Michelle and Barack in different years. And he said between Michelle and Barack, he thought it would have been Michelle to, the one to run for president and not Barack. So she's very political, and I make the case that She's pretty much copying what Barack did to, before he ran for president. Barack wrote two autobiographies, uh, Dreams for My Father and The Audacity of Hope. Michelle wrote her best-selling Becoming and also The Light We Carry. They're both on Netflix as well as movies. Barack was the keynote speaker who introduced John Kerry at the 2004 Democrat convention. Sure enough, there was Michelle introducing Joe Biden in 2020. And uh, also Barack had a voter registration organization called Project Vote, Michelle got 26 million bucks from George Soros, and she started something called When We All Vote. So I see her just copying step by step everything Barack did and setting up for the moment when I think Biden will drop out for health reasons or some other reasons. So you obviously, uh, I mean, you wrote a book about this and produced a documentary about it. So you've done a lot of research on it, and you're not just pulling this out of midair. But um, at what point will the media begin to take this as seriously as you have? Well, Michelle put up a front years ago. You might remember in 2008, she was doing uh, speeches for Barack all over the country, very nasty anti-American speeches. You can't pay for food in this country. You can't afford your mortgage. You can't pay for child care. Don't get sick in this country. And she kind of went over the top one night and said, well, for the first time in my life, I'm proud of my country because Barack won a primary now, she said a lot worse things than that, but the media started paying attention, and they told her, you know, you could lo we could lose because of you. And that's when the next day she said, oh, I hate politics. I just want to be the mom-in-chief. So she's kind of kept that up ever since to pretend not to be political uh, because there was so much negative uh, feedback. But I did a whole research on her real-life history, and it turns out that Michelle's, uh, Michelle had a terrible relationship with the black community in Chicago. And this is very revelatory because... 
The Democrats need about 90, 95 percent of black voters to get their people elected. And black voters are no fools. If they knew that Michelle is somebody that exploited the black community in her career, she made 20,000 blacks homeless, kicked them out of their homes when she was working for the mayor of Chicago. I go into all the details in my film and book. By the way, you can check out the trailer and link up to the book and film at uh, michelleobama24.com. And then she worked for the University of Chicago Medical Center. Her job was to deny access to black people from getting health care at the University of Chicago Hospital. If you showed up and you were black, Michelle would put you in a van and dump you back on the south side in a crappy strip mall clinic. Michelle always took jobs from white liberals. When they had problems with black people, they couldn't hire a white person to kick black people out of their homes. They couldn't hire a white person to kick them out of the emergency room. Michelle took those jobs and made a ton of money exploiting and abusing the black community. And I think she did that because of her terrible experience as a child growing up. She didn't have any black friends. She even writes in her book about getting beat up by the other black kids who called her an Oreo, meaning you're black on the outside but white on the inside. It's a racial insult. And uh, Michelle refused to study with other black kids. She went an hour and a half away. So did her brother, went to a Catholic school, even though they weren't Catholic, because they wanted to avoid studying with other black kids. So Michelle has a huge problem with the black community, and she's been trying very hard to pretend, well, I'm just one of these ordinary black folks just like you, but it's all a big lie. And when you see my film, you understand how she sold out the black community throughout her life. Now, when she was do- working for the hospital and, and sending blacks away in vans, um, was she known as, a, as an up-and-coming politi- a politician? Was she known to be the wife of Barack Obama? Was this before she hooked up with him? And No, she, she was married to Barack, but she was known as someone who would do the dirty work uh, for the white liberals for a ton of money. Michelle got paid $300,000 a year. It was called the Southside Health Collaborative, and it was an illegal scheme. It was called patient dumping, meaning you're saving the the hospital beds for rich white liberal elites and kicking black people that don't have good insurance out of the emergency room. So Michelle always did the dirty work for white liberals and made a ton of money doing it. And at the time, she she really enjoyed it. I mean, it wasn't a problem. Uh, If she wants to run for president, though, I think uh, that's going to be her biggest Achilles heel because uh, black voters don't like sellouts. And Michelle was a sellout all her life. Uh, When her father became ill, she talks a lot in her book about her father uh, becoming very ill. She put him in the University of Chicago Medical Center. She didn't dump him in some clinic in a strip mall like she did so many other black people. Um, And how aware was the average black person that this was going on? You say that the black people... I, 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 I I just wonder, the average black person who was sent to the hospital and ended up in a van going somewhere else. Well, it was covered in the media in Chicago quite a bit. And Michelle, Mm -hmm. you know, did these PR uh, stunts where she would say, this is going to be good for you. She wrote a whole pamphlet. You can see that in my book and in my film. She wrote a whole pamphlet saying, this is better. It's better off for you if if you don't get good health care at the University of Chicago Medical Center. You're better off staying in your own neighborhood. Uh, She could be arrested for a hate crime today for doing what she did. She did the same thing with the the projects at Cabrini Green, there were 20,000 blacks living in these projects since the 50s, and they, the city wanted to give the land to Tony Resco and these Democrat donor developers to, to build expensive housing near downtown. Michelle kicked them out of their homes and said, it's going to be good for you. You're better off. That was the message. They couldn't hire a white person to do that. So Michelle always did the dirty work for white liberals when they had problems with the black community. Why? Where was the conservative media when 
she was running for president with her husband um, in, 04, in 08 and, and 2012. Why were these stories not out there? Well, uh, they came up a little bit here and there on Glenn Beck, but didn't get too much traction. I remember way back at the time, generally they stayed away from Michelle. They were afraid to kind of mess with her. It was inappropriate. She's female. Uh, you know, you don't want to be accused of being sexist. It was only when Michelle went over the top and said she's proud of her country for the first time that they started to kind of cover her. And then she put up this front story that, oh, I hate politics. I just want to be the mom in chief. So they kind of left her alone after that. Uh, but there's a lot of stories about the Obamas. I mean, both of them have phony backgrounds. Both of them claim to be someone who was an ordinary black person that suffered from discrimination and overcame all these obstacles. And both of them are completely lying. Michelle was an elite. She didn't have any black friends. She refused to study with them. And uh, she kind of got her revenge on them once she got into her professional career by kicking them out of their homes and denying them access to health care. And that's why you see Michelle making such a big effort to outreach to minorities the last few years. So many phony stories that she's trying to go over the top about discrimination and race because she's so insecure about her own black identity. Because black people, just kind of like Barack, they didn't consider him to be black when he ran for president because he's from Hawaii, he was from a white family. Uh, Michelle also had the same problem, ironically, too. Them had a lot in common is black people didn't consider her to be black. They called her an Oreo. Racial insult, meaning you're black on the outside, but you're white on the inside, because she never really had anything to do with the black community. And I, I, I show that in my film and my book, and I think uh, that's going to be exposed if she runs for president, which I think she's going to do. We're talking to Joel Gilbert. The book is uh, Michelle Obama, her real-life story and her plan for power. And how can uh, people find the, uh, the documentary? Yeah, you can go to, you can actually live stream it on SalemNow.com. Mm-hmm or Amazon Prime Video. Uh, the book and the DVD are also on Amazon.com. And you can watch the movie trailer and link up to all these things at, at MichelleObama24.com. Okay, so um, how, how do you see this playing out, Joel? How, how do they set her up as the reluctant hero coming to save the day? What's it going to look she, like? Well, I think Michelle has set it up for years. She's maintained her high profile. She's got these books out. She's got a huge following. She has 100 million followers on all the different social media it's just a question of time. I think Biden is going to go through the primary process. He'll probably be impeached by the House. The Hunter Biden stuff's going to get worse and worse. Biden might have to pardon him. I think probably in the late spring or early summer, could go all the way to the convention that uh, uh, they'll tell Biden, you know, for the good of the country, you have to let someone else run. And he'll say, well, for health reasons or some other reason, I've decided not to run again. And that's when all eyes will turn to Michelle Obama, who's going to pretend not to be so interested, but she'll reluctantly do us all a big favor and bring the country together again. So um, uh, how, how much longer, well, put it this way, uh, better question, could any of this be in the works without Biden knowing about it? Yeah, I mean, don't forget, every day something is going on that he's not kind of aware of. And right. they, you know, he has people that send out his tweets, they write his speeches. Mm-hmm. He shows up every three days. He takes a vacation somewhere in, in, you know, in Delaware, and he shows up and reads a couple of speeches, and he goes back to Delaware. I don't think Biden is really controlling very much or in charge of anything. So, yeah, everything is done behind the scenes, and he's kind of a, the public face of a, a very radical presidency that uh, he's not really controlling. Is Barack Obama controlling it? I think there's a great argument for that. Obama never left Washington. Never happened before that the former president doesn't leave Washington. He bought a house there. He meets regularly with members of the House. 
and the Democrat National Committee. He's clearly still the head of the uh, Democrat Party. And most of Biden's staffers, including Biden himself, are former Obama people. So there's an argument that you look at all these policies and it's just an extension of, of Barack Obama's first two terms and Obama's still in charge. I think the Obamas are itching to get back in the White House and Michelle is their ticket. That's uh, very interesting. Now, um, I, uh, I I read a, a quote from someone. I wish I could remember who it was. Probably not the only person. Well, I think it's the only one who, who actually said this specifically. I forget who it was again, but... He shot down this uh, Michelle for president theory because he said, you people should just forget about her being president. She's too lazy, and she wouldn't want to do anything as hard as this, run for and then serve as president. Well, look, uh, people don't, they don't know Michelle. They need to see my movie or read the book. Mm-hmm. Michelle is a political animal. Since age four, she's been going around with her precinct captain father. She's always been heavily into politics her whole life. Her best friend in Chicago was Bernadine Dorn, the head of the Weather Underground. She married a politician. She's very, very political. People don't understand that. She doesn't care about, you know, money and gaining wealth. She already has all that stuff. So these are people that don't understand Michelle Obama's uh, political nature. She's a better politician than Barack. She's a better speaker. And I think if you just look at her Twitter account, it's all politics all the time. And she's very much interested in, in power. Why didn't she run for office? Why don't you think? Well, I think... Um, she was just starting to write her autobiographies when uh, Trump was running, and uh, it was it, you know she was still first lady. It was too soon, mm-hmm. and then Trump looked like a shoe in for reelection. I mean, it had a huge amount of uh, support, and I think she was still building up her uh, audiences. And it probably wasn't the timing wasn't right. Uh, now I think the timing is perfect for Michelle and the. Uh, Democrat Party is very anxious and hungry for her to take Biden's place. Hillary um, wanted to be president from day one, um, and she, uh, as everybody knows, went and, and was a carpetbagger and became the senator from New York, yeah. um, and it almost worked for her. So Michelle doesn't think she needs to do that, apparently. Well, Michelle's much more popular than Hillary. Michelle's probably the most popular person in the country, if not the entire world. She's had 15 years of all positive publicity. Mm -hmm. So she doesn't really need to have a Senate seat to prove that she can do something. It's pretty much uh, she promotes, even in her book tour, she talks about how how great the Obama years were. We didn't have any scandals and, you know, how hard we worked. And it was always we, we, we. She's like the co-president. So that's her street cred. She has a lot of street cred. Hillary Clinton didn't have too much street cred and had a huge amount of people who just hated her. I think Michelle is in a much better position, and uh, the Democrat Party absolutely just love her. What do you think would have happened if she had run in 2020 with only four years in between uh, being first lady and running for president? Uh, I, I don't know that she could have really uh, stood up to Donald Trump because he was so popular and such mm-hmm. a such a popular president. I think she was still uh, doing her book tours from her first autobiography, and I don't think she was quite ready to to make that statement. I think she was probably planning to run in, in uh, 2024, and for whatever reason that you remember Biden um, back in April announced he was running. And uh, he put out a, a little two-minute video as if that's some big uh, announcement. But on the, same, on the next day, Susan Rice quit working for Biden. Susan Rice is definitely on Team Obama. So it appeared that uh, Biden was not really following the script, that you're supposed to wait to be told what to do. Uh, so I think they decided just to let him know later. So I think that's what's in the works. 
I got about thirty seconds here. What, what's the what's the next big thing we should? What's the next sign we should look for that it's I about to just, happen? You got to keep looking for Michelle to make these political statements, like she did last week. How terrified she is! What's going to happen to the country? How government's supposed to work? She said government does everything for us. Keep looking for Michelle to kind of pop up here and there with these political statements. I think it will be relatively quiet, though, through, other than that, through June, July, well, June, when, uh, you know, Biden's poll numbers are so bad that people are going to tell him he's got to go, especially after he gets impeached. So I think all eyes will be on Michelle, and she's pretty much waiting for that moment. And one more time, Joel Gilbert, uh, where can the people go to find the trailer and, and hook up with all this stuff? Yeah, please. It's MichelleObama24.com is the film website and the book. And then you can live stream the movie on Amazon Prime Video or SalemNow.com. Hey, I appreciate you coming on, Joel. I have a feeling we'll want to talk to you again here before too long. Thanks. I'm a native Pittsburgher, by the way, for, uh, born in Churchill. Oh. I'm, I'm still a big Steelers and Bucks fan. So. Oh, okay, big uh, Pittsburgh guy. I didn't know that. Thanks. I, right. I would have mentioned that. Thanks, Joel. Okay, maybe next year for the Steelers. All right. <laughs> See ya. We'll be Bye. right back. Well, crime should be a pretty important issue in this election coming up, and we'll be hearing a lot of ideas about how to reduce it. The Center for Disease Control and Prevention uh, doesn't seem like the place you would go for answers for that, but it's coming out with recommendations. And Rafael Mangual uh, of City Journal has written a lot about crime at the Manhattan Institute and at City Journal, and he's the author of a book called Criminal Justice, and he joins us now. Thanks for coming on the show again, Rafael. I appreciate it. Oh, it's always great to be on with you. Thanks so much for having me. So um, should I be a little skeptical about what the CDC says about, well, anything, but what it says about how to uh, reduce crime? You should absolutely be skeptical of it, but you should be very troubled by the fact that they're wading into this debate because what they're essentially trying to do, I take it, is to lend scientific imprimatur to what are crazy ideas and to what is a radical policy agenda to decarcerate and de-police in America, which is going to have disastrous results for communities that really can't afford uh, to continue playing the game that progressives want to play. So um, the CDC is about disease control and prevention, and I guess crime is a disease? Is that what we're supposed to believe? Yeah. I think they think their jurisdiction derives from this idea that we should view crime through a public health lens, which, you know, can be defensible in some ways, depending on, you know, what you mean by that and, and what thoughts and, and, and policy uh, ideas that, that triggers. But, you know, ultimately what the CDC is doing here is it's acting as an extension of the progressive movement to decarcerate and depolice. And what they want to do, like I said, is, is, is kind of, lend the grandiosity that the CDC brand carries to these ideas to make it harder to combat, right? So that when someone like me stands up and says, like, hey, actually, you know, this bail reform isn't such a great idea, they can say, well, you know, the CDC, the very smart scientists at the CDC say it is. So, you know, clearly we're on the right side of things. And that, you know, relieves them of the responsibility to actually have the substantive debate about the specific policies that they're proposing. You know, the reality is, is that the CDC is coming from a position that reflects a belief that crime is a function of things like poverty and low socioeconomic status and inequality and joblessness. Um, but the, the evidence on that is, is very, very thin. 
right? I mean, even the strongest causal analyses only that, that do find a relationship between socioeconomic status and crime only attribute a tiny, tiny portion of the crime problem to those factors. So, you know, it really doesn't hold the candle to what we can do to traditional institutions of law enforcement, like police and prosecutors and correctional systems. And, and they want to suppress that evidence, right? The, the ideologues want us get away from the idea that policing and incarceration are public policy goods and and start, you know, eschewing the lessons that we learned through the decade in the 1990s and early 2000s in favor of this, you know, very radical policy agenda that's going to lend, you know, uh, that, that's going to uh, really focus on uh, expanding the public welfare state and doing so uh, under the guise that it's a crime control measure. I saw, speaking of uh, radical, um, I saw that the L.A. Times just the other day endorsed George Gasson for uh, re-election out there as district attorney. Uh, I'm guessing the CDC would approve of his approach. Isn't he what you, exactly yeah, what you're talking about? That's that's yeah, I think that's right. Uh, you know, again, George Gascon is, you know, one of the, the sort of poster boys of the progressive prosecutor movement. And, you know, again, the idea behind that movement is that traditional institutions of law enforcement are net negatives, right? That these are institutions that do harm and that harm needs to be mitigated by shrinking the footprint, which is why if you look at the policy agenda of someone like George Gascon through his time in office so far, it's been characterized by non-prosecution policies where he says, you know, there's this whole list of offenses that I'm just not going to go after. They're functionally decriminalized because even if you make an arrest, uh, LAPD, I'm not going to back that arrest uh, with, with any prosecution. And then- you see policies like getting away with sentence, uh, doing away with sentencing enhancements, right? He, he doesn't want his line prosecutors to pursue enhancements for three strikes violations or gun enhancements or gang enhancements. The idea being that people shouldn't go to prison. Um, you know, in part because ultimately, I think deep down, these people believe that, you know, criminal offenders aren't actually responsible for their actions, that their actions are the fault of society that's placed them in these dire circumstances that left them with no other choice. When, of course, that's, that's nonsense. Yeah. And your piece, uh, and we're talking to Rafael Manguel of the uh, um, City Journal. You can find him at city-journal.org. Um yeah, in your piece, I thought it was really interesting. You really shoot down the whole idea of the uh, correlation between poverty and crime, and there there are numbers that you have to back that up. Yeah, I mean, you know, again, it, it it's it's not the case that there is absolutely zero evidence in the social science research that can link poverty to crime. The question is is whether there is a direct causal link in the particular direction that progresses. Mark, right? Like, they, yes, it's true that a huge chunk of criminal offenders are from low socioeconomic status, but that does not mean that socioeconomic, low socioeconomic status causes crime. It could be, right, that the same characteristics that make one, that, that make crime appealing to somebody are also associated with low socioeconomic status, right? And so when you look at, you know, some data, I mean, take New York City, for example. In 1990, we had 2,262 murders. In 2017, we had 292 murders. That's a 90% decline. Over that time period, poverty essentially remained steady. In fact, got slightly worse, such that the poverty rate in 1989 was actually slightly lower than the poverty rate in 2016, which are the two years that preceded both our peak and our valley with respect to homicides. If the relationship between poverty and crime is as strong as progressives allege, then that 
could not possibly happen. It would be impossible to get a 90% decline in a, in, a, in a crime category like homicides without poverty changing any, in, in any way. And, and again, you don't see uh, um, you know, uh, different socioeconomic um, measures track with, with violent crime data over, over time. And we didn't see a crime spike during the Great Recession. We didn't see a crime spike during uh, the Great Depression. Uh, in fact, the 1920s saw a, a really uh, massive increase in crime in this country, and that was a period in which, you know, there was a lot of economic growth. The reality is, is that other factors explain a much larger chunk of the crime problem, and perhaps the factors that explain the most of it, at least from, from, uh, for the purposes of, of whether or not, we, you know, uh, we can pursue a, a crime reduction policy agenda, it's policing and incarceration and prosecution uh, that, that have the most potential to offer immediate relief, right? I mean, the, the, the kind of thrust of the piece, the, the argument that we really wanted to drive home was that, one, it, it, it's, it's, it's nowhere near established that, you know, socioeconomic status drives crime. But even if that were true, we don't necessarily know how to fix it, right? I mean, how many trillions of dollars has this country spent on anti-poverty programs since the 1960s? It's got to be in the 20 to 30 trillion dollar range. And yet poverty is still an issue across this country. We haven't eliminated that problem. Mm-hmm. But even if we take it a step further and we say, OK, we'll, we'll grant you that socioeconomic status causes crime. We'll grant you that you somehow have a solution. That is, by definition, a long term project. We know that investing in policing and incarceration of offenders who are out today committing crimes today can give communities relief today. Those are the only institutions that can do that. You know, I, I was on um, uh, the Trevor Noah, uh, the Daily Show with Trevor Noah when I was promoting my book, and, and we were having a, a very spirited debate. And at one point, you know, he had mentioned education spending as a, a means of, of crime control. And I, I, I gave him some, some data out of Chicago that showed that between 2014 and 16, the state had gone from, uh, Chicago had gone from spending something like 15 to 20% above the national um, median per pupil to like 30%, right? So it was a pretty big increase in education spending. But over that same period, homicides grew by something like 50%. And his response to me was like, well, you know, the analogy I'd like to use is, you know, if you're a sort of a general manager building a professional sports team, right? What you start out with is prospects and then you put them through the minor leagues and you develop them. And then maybe 10 years down the road, that's when you have your world championship team. And he thought this was kind of a home run. But the reality is, is that there's a very simple retort to that, which is like, what about all the people that are dying and being victimized right now? You want them to wait 10 years to see if your experiment actually plays out? That's yeah. indefensible to me. Yeah, if, if you are living in a high crime area, um, you're not really all that interested in long-term plans. If you know people are, are f- dropping on the sidewalk because they're murdered or beat up or... You know, their houses are being broken into. Um, you really don't want to hear a plan that's going to f- have it all straightened out in about 10 years. That's exactly right. People expect and are entitled to immediate relief when it comes to crime. Why? Because the first order of government, the whole reason governments are instituted among men to take language from uh, our founding fathers, is a reflection of the reality that men are not angels, right? We understand that there are bad people in our society that are going to prey upon uh, their fellow man. And those individuals need to be held accountable and they need to be incapacitated when they show through their repeated criminal behavior that they're not going to play by society's rules. It is not an answer to the would-be victims of those criminals to say, well, maybe in 10 years we can figure out 
uh, a solution to the problems that we think but don't know for sure are driving this this behavior, which, by the way, has existed in in, in human uh, societies throughout history and across the world. There has never been a society without crime. There has never been a society without poverty. There has never been a society without inequality. The idea that we somehow have figured out the answers to those uh, seemingly intractable problems that, again, are common denominators across uh, uh, the globe and throughout history, and that that is going to solve the other intractable problem of crime, like, I'm sorry, I'm just not buying. Well, liberals, as, as you mentioned, they, they want to focus on the root causes. Um, and I have a feeling that the liberals who think that that would be a really nice experiment and who have tried it and not faced up to the fact that that doesn't work, but you have people who don't live in those neighborhoods who think it would be really wonderful to take 10 years to focus on the root causes. If they lived there, they might not have the same idea. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. I mean, if you actually talk to the people who are living in you know, the, the communities that are really suffering the brunt of the crime problem, because, again, that's not a problem that's evenly distributed. Right? I mean, I, I've gone through this data many times, including on your show. I mean, crime is a very – you want to talk about disparities. That is one of the starkest and most persistent disparities, whether across racial lines or socioeconomic lines. Right? It, it's crime. It's a very hyper-concentrated phenomenon. Um, and, and so if you're talking to the people that live in the communities that are dealing with the brunt of that problem, that are being, they're seeing victimization rates that are 10, 20, 30, a hundred times higher than the national average. Yeah. Those people don't have, uh, the patience uh, for, you know, the, the results of your experiment to come in, in a decade, maybe. Yeah. Speaking, you know, it's, it's an incredible amount to ask. Speaking of uh, root causes and long-term projects, what, what about kids without fathers at home? Right. Well, this is, you know, we, we highlighted this in the piece to kind of make the argument that, you know, there are actually other root cause stories besides the socioeconomic status story that actually have a lot more research behind them. Right. And, and you know, one of the things that I've been you know trying to argue over the years is that fatherlessness is, in fact, a root cause of crime. If you look at criminal populations, and you look at some of the psychological conditions that are common across those populations, things like antisocial personality disorder, for example. In the general population among men within the United States, antisocial personality disorder has a prevalence rate of somewhere between 2 and 4%. If you look at surveys of prisoners across the world, you're looking at rates that range from 40 to 70%. Right? Of, fa- so, of fatherless? And, and it, no, no, of antisocial personality disorder. And oh. then you look at the precursors for antisocial oh, okay. personality disorder, and what you find that those disorders start to appear in early childhood. They start as conduct disorders, things like oppositional defiance disorders. And some of the biggest predictors of those kinds of psychological conditions are broken homes. Kids who are raised in homes with single mothers are way more likely to experience the kind of adverse childhood experiences that then lead to the same kind of psychological conditions that are much more prevalent among criminals than among the general population, which tells us that there's actually likely a much stronger link between fatherlessness and crime than between poverty and crime. And so uh, some uh, co-authors and I recently did a study looking at uh, some data. And what we found was that at the state level, at the city level, at the county level, and at the census tract level, crime numbers are way bigger in jurisdictions that have higher than the median rates of fatherlessness, of of broken homes, right? So, I mean, you're you're talking about numbers like 
two, three, four hundred percent higher crime, violence, or homicide rates in census tracts in the city of Chicago that are above the median uh, share of households that, that that are headed by a single parent. And again, right? that, I mean, these are incredible numbers. And that's another problem that's not going to be fixed quickly. So you can't wait for exactly. that to be fixed. You have that's to deal exactly with the kids right. who don't have fathers or didn't have fathers growing up, and if they commit a crime, you got to you got to do something about it, right? That's exactly right. And one of the main reasons to do something about it and to do something about it now is that the other root cause of crime is crime. Crime is criminogenic. It causes more crime down the road, right? If there's an aggravating assault uh, between gang members, guess what? That's going to spark a retaliation. If you take those gang members off the street who committed the initial assault, then you incapacitate them from being retaliated against, right? I mean, there's a ton of overlap. If you actually look at the data among homicide victims, between victims and offenders, they have very, very similar profiles, very similar criminal history. So, so one of the things that we have to understand is by immediately responding to crime by taking offenders off the streets, we're actually helping to break that cycle that is going to continue while we engage in this long-term project that progressives want us to engage in. Now, you've done a very scientific study of all this stuff with lots of data. And uh, you've come up with uh, conclusions that are pretty hard to argue with. But if you live, again, if you live in one of the neighborhoods that you're talking about, you don't need your study, do you? You, you know, no, you, you know no, what's going common on. Common sense. That's exactly right. I mean, you talk to the people who are actually living in it, and they will be very, very honest and forthright with you. And it, it's very clear what these problems are. Again, it doesn't take a PhD to understand that growing up in a broken home is suboptimal, right? Compared to, to, you know, being raised by two married parents who love each other, right? It doesn't take a genius to understand that a kid who's exposed to trauma repeatedly and that isn't supervised is likelier to get into trouble than the kid who is supervised and who's raised in a loving household, who's not exposed to trauma, drug use, et cetera. Right. These are very, very common sense ideas. But the unfortunate reality is, is that the way that our public debate is being conducted, it requires folks like me and others who are doing this work to, to actually rebut the seemingly crazy, but apparently uh, very in vogue, at least in academia, assumptions that uh, undergird the progressive policy agenda in American cities. And unfortunately, that agenda has experienced a lot of positive momentum. Right. I mean, again, you have major newspapers in cities like L.A., you know, um, endorsing Gascon. They want more uh, of it. Despite the record. Right. Yeah. You know, it it really is mind boggling. Well, I'm out of time, uh, Raphael. Always good to have you on. People should check out your piece at cityjournal.org and um, and also uh, read your book, Criminal Justice. Hope to have you on again. Criminal Uh, Injustice. I'm sorry. What did I say? Criminal, you said criminal justice. It's criminal injustice. I'm sorry. It's a big difference. Oh. <laughs> Very big. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Okay, that's criminal injustice, and that's Raphael Mangual. We'll be right back. Well, I uh, opened the show talking about um, organized sports for kids and the study that's been done that uh, says that 70% of the kids who are involved in organized sports are getting burned out. By the time they reach 13, and I, I, in case you missed it, basically I, I can sum it up by saying I think kids are too organized too soon, and that's why they, they burn out and kids should be left alone. So I saw on Twitter 
I wish I could. I wish you could see this. I'll try to to describe it to you. There's a kid. These two kids. They look like to be eh, between two boys, between eight and ten years old. The one kid, they have a bike that's kind of anchored in some really sloppy mud, so that the wheels, the back wheel is turning as the kid is pedaling real fast, and mud is spewing out of the back of the, you know, from the tire running on this mud. A sta- it's like a stationary bike. They, they have it set up in, in the middle of all this mud. And this kid is doing it. He is laughing hysterically. He's having a great time. There's a kid on his knees behind the bike. He's got some kind of goggles on. And he has he's sticking his face like two inches from where the mud is just pouring out of the back of this bike. And these kids are having so much fun. They're laughing. They're having a good time. And I, I put it up on Twitter. You can find it at Stogger World, but and I put up there on Twitter with uh, with the uh, the tag uh, toxic masculinity. But just when I, I I just happened to see this on the same day that I read this story that I told you about about the kids burning out. These these two kids are having more fun, at laughing and having a better time with no parents within a hundred yards of them doing something completely stupid and harmless. And that's what boys should be doing when they're eight years old, not being put in a uniform and run out to a soccer field. Leave the kids alone. I, I mean, you have to see this, the joy in the two kids, the, how much they are enjoying this. And I'm, I'm guarantee you that the one kid who was in the back getting sprayed in the face, they switched places and he got on the bike after that. And the, it was tremendous. Made my day. I'll talk to you tomorrow. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.